Hey, frazzled women, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. This is the virtual lounge for frazzled type A's, imposters, and overscheduling addicts. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin Snyder. Heads up, I know this show is marked as explicit, but this is your reminder to hit pause and grab headphones if you have people who won't pardon the kind of French we might use as two grown women having a conversation. Now's your chance. You can course correct. You can protect those ears around you. Because for those of you who are regular listeners, you know my job is to introduce you to modern women leaving their unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. And today's guest, Rachel Citrin, is no exception. She is certainly not letting bullshit or burnout or fear or any of these other yucky things slow her down. Rachel's actually kind of got two dual careers going on, and it's actually working really well for her in some surprising and unexpected ways, which she'll talk about. But by day, she's the head of accounts and new business at Powerhouse Animation in Austin, Texas, and her side hustle is being a manager of several performing artists at Jet or Not Management. So she's a busy woman, and we're going to talk about how she juggles both of those careers. We're also going to talk about how she went to school for one thing and ended up doing something totally different, and how she took this job out of school, not really knowing what to expect, and then with over the years has been able to sculpt it into this job that she really loves and that plays to her skills. And she's going to give some really great examples and some practical advice of what worked for her to do that. So if you're someone who's kind of making a transition or if you're someone who's in a job that just you're not digging right now, hopefully there's some inspiration in this conversation from what Rachel shares. And also, she talks about how, in some really pivotal points, and one in particular, she said yes, even when she had no fucking clue what she was doing. And to some people listening, that might be absolutely terrifying. I know, perfectionist, put your big girl panties on, because she's going to bring some really interesting stuff. So, I encourage you to listen. I encourage you to check out what she's doing in the world um, and enjoy this episode. And I'll also share a little bit of trivia about this episode. So Rachel did not get murdered during the making of this show. And, you know, as a podcast host, and let's be honest, a recovering perfectionist, I really try my hardest to get good sound and have a quiet background, and have this show sound professional. And behind the scenes, there have been some crazy moments. Um, Let's flash back to my very, very first episode that I ever recorded, and I was super nervous, even though it was my awesome friend, Angela Lucier. And as I recorded the episode... There we were getting some background noise, and she's a podcaster herself, so she could hear it. And so to course correct, the only place that I could find in my house where I could balance a computer and a microphone, get internet access, 
was in this upstairs closet. And I recorded the whole episode and felt like a winner and GarageBand didn't blow up and I actually was able to record it. And then when I went to get out of the closet, I was completely locked in the closet. And Craig had just left for LA that morning. So literally, thankfully I had Skype, I was able to Skype one of my neighbors to find our hidden key outside and come let me out. That was a little bit of a a rocky start to the first episode. And since then, there's been Skype failures. One guest, as soon as we got connected and everything working, literally her entire building's internet went down. And so we kind of had to scramble and course correct there. But this episode with Rachel was exceptionally funny, and I'm sure psychologists and psychologists listening would have a lot to unpack here. But it's really funny, because as the popularity of podcasts, and especially crime podcasts, increases, it's funny how it trickles out into weird ways. And so while Rachel and I were recording she watched a strange man that she didn't know walk up to her door and then was knocking on the door. You know, the obvious thing to do was just like pause and wait and she was going to go answer the door. And it was funny because she was thinking about her love of crime podcasts and you'll hear her talk about that. And as I was just sort of listening, I immediately began to wonder, am I going to listen to one of my podcast guests actually get murdered? Right, A strange man walking up to the door, knocking on the door, uninvited, unintended guest. I mean, immediately leap to that. So Craig has edited that out of the podcast just to kind of keep with the flow and the conversation. But I thought it's really funny. So as much as crime dramas are filtering into our consciousness, hopefully some of the inspiring stuff Rachel says creeps into all of your consciousness and you apply it and not as any sort of murder or serial killer or anything like that. All right, all right. Before I ramble my way into an even darker, more inappropriate place, I want to remind everyone listening that if you want to be notified of future podcasts and not have to figure out when to listen to it or hope it floats by you on social media, the best way you can do that is to jump on the email list. So not only will you get notified about future shows, you will also receive some health and lifestyle motivation and sometimes tips from the shows and things like that. So you can do that by heading over to levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. And you can click on Get Emails from Me and type your name and your email and we'll be good to go. And please know all of those emails are sent directly from me to you and I am always a reply away. So if there's something you dug on the show or didn't dig or you have an idea for a future guest, just hit reply and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, enough of me talking. Voila, here's my interview with Rachel. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the Vital Course Salon. Hi, Kara. Howdy. I am so happy to have you here all the way from Austin, Texas. 
yeah, I'm excited to do this. This is my first podcast I've ever recorded, so go easy on me. No way. <laughs> Don't go easy on me. Take it back. <laughs> Don't you want – it's like, come on, we'll just make it baptism by fire. <laughs> okay, that sounds good too. You'll be ready for any podcast after this. Hopefully that's uh, my next thing is I'll just do the podcast circuit based on the success of this one. Awesome. And so, Rachel, let's start with work because sometimes that's the easiest place to sort of dive in and where we spend a big old hunk of our life. And these days, you're the head of accounts and new business at Powerhouse Animation, which is also in Austin, Texas. It sure is. How did you initially get into that work? Because if I recall, this was not your original path. It was not at all. So um, I moved to Austin just about 10 years ago. I'm actually coming up on my 10-year anniversary of living in Texas in the next couple of months. And I moved out here to attend grad school at the University of Texas, and my graduate degree is in women and gender studies. So that was what my um, academic background had been in undergrad, and that's what I wanted to study. Um, And I did some some social work jobs and some um, TA-ship jobs when I was in grad school, and at no point during that uh, experience did I really have any idea about animation or even think that I was going to work in a creative field of any kind. Um, so what ended up happening was when I finished my graduate degree, uh, it was a it was a hard time to get a job, and I applied for basically everything that I could find. I had it in my head that I really wanted to work for a nonprofit, um, especially something that was doing some sort of activism, um, whether it was specifically in sort of like a women and gender field or otherwise. That's, that's what I thought I was looking out for. So I applied for a bunch of those sorts of jobs, and then I started applying for anything available. I was applying to be administrative assistant. I was applying at restaurants, um, just all sorts of things. Um, and I think that that period was maybe about four to six months where I was just kind of floating around, not wanting to leave Austin, but I didn't really have any uh, direction at that point. So I happened to have a friend. I think we just, you know, went out for drinks or went to a movie or something, and I was complaining that I had been doing nothing but sending in resumes and that nothing was coming through. And he sort of casually said, oh, well, the animation studio that I've been working for is looking to hire a receptionist. Is that something that you would be interested in? And I remember just (laughs) yelling at him, like, absolutely, yes, is it a full-time job? Uh, Like, at this point, I will take anything. That sounds great. Um, So I went in for an interview probably that next week. I think they hadn't even really started looking to fill the position. They had just kind of floated internally that they needed to fill it. And he mentioned it to me probably that day. And I sent in my resume the next day and had an interview probably 48 hours later. And then the next day they called me and offered me the gig. So um, I just kind of fell into the studio, not knowing anything about the animation world, not knowing anything about what that production process was like. But I knew within that first week of working there, that it was a special environment. And it was a a really interesting company full of really talented people. And I remember telling someone 
when I had gotten that job, you know, I had gotten a master's degree in women's studies and then I was answering the phones at this studio <laughs> and I just kind of said, well, if I'm going to answer the phones, if I'm going to have a receptionist position, what better place to do that than this really colorful, exciting animation studio? Um, th- at least the folks that are calling have something interesting to say and it, it just seemed like a really fun place to be. So I thought I would hold on to that gig for a little bit while I kept kind of searching around for something that was more tailored to what my background was in. Um, but ultimately what happened was instead of using that job and to kind of kill time to look for something is I ended up just turning that job into what I wanted to be doing. I started to get comfortable there. I developed a really good relationship with my boss, who's the CEO of the company. Um, and I, I used to just go into his office. I'd probably been there maybe a month, a couple months, um, and started to kind of get bored. There wasn't a lot really for me to do. Um, so I would go into his office and just say like, Hey, my background is here. I have, um, these are some skills that I have. Are any of these useful? Because I really didn't know at that point how the company was being run or what was happening behind the scenes. I was simply answering the phones and directing people to the relevant parties and stocking the office supplies and all that sort of thing. So I had very little idea at that point of, of how their business was coming in and what that pipeline looked like. So I just kind of said, I have some skills in writing and editing and all of these sorts of things. And can you use that somehow? And I remember the first time I did, walked into his office and said that, that he sort of was like, oh, well, yeah, sure. I've got plenty <laughs> of things I could give you to do. He seemed very surprised um, by that offer and kind of slowly started to give me more responsibility um, and just sort of test the waters on my uh, capabilities in different areas, um, whether it was just proofreading some proposal that he had written um, or kind of taking on one or two clients and trying to be sort of the client coordinator, project manager on some smaller things. And over time, that sort of grew into the position that I have now. Rachel, what a cool story. (laughs) So I, my head is kind of exploding with questions. Sure. And I'm sort of picturing you know, initially when you were talking, it's like coming from this academic world of women and gender studies into this, you know, front desk, basically, job Uh where you're, all I could picture was working girl. (laughs) (laughs) How did you make that jump? I mean, I know you were kind of at the point where you're like, all right, I just need a freaking job already so I can stay in Austin. But at the same time, did you have any reservations about jumping into this position, which is so notoriously female? Sure. Um, no, I really didn't. I mean, I was at the point where I knew that I, I wanted to stay in Austin. I had grown to really love it here. I'd been here for about two years at that point. Um, my only other option um, was like to move back home and and shop around for some job there. So I really wanted to stay. And um, it seemed like something that maybe wasn't 
going to be a long-term solution, but it wasn't something that I was unhappy about doing. I know there's, you know, all those ridiculous stereotypes. Um, and especially when I started at the company, we were a lot smaller than we are now. We were maybe in like the mid twenties as far as staff. And there was probably only five or so women that were working there at the time. Um, so it did feel a little bit like a stereotype, um, me coming in as probably the only person in the office who didn't have some sort of background in art or games or, um, animation. I really was just, uh, a complete outsider at that point. Um, and I think people didn't really know how to relate to me, but I was just happy to be in an environment where people seem to like their job. So regardless of if, if I had any knowledge of what really they were doing or what the capabilities of, of the folks around me, I could just tell that people were happy to be there. Um, and that made me happy to be there regardless of what my role was at that time. It's just infectious when, um, people are content and enjoying what they're doing. So I kind of just fed off that. Which is awesome to hear because at points in my life, I've been in jobs where it's the opposite and it's a total contagion where people hate their jobs. Yeah, and I think you can tell that immediately, right? When you kind of enter that environment, you get that sense of whether people want to be there or not. And I just had a really good sense of, of that office that first couple weeks. Um, and they were really welcoming of me, even though I was such an outsider. And I think in some ways I still sort of am, even though I've been working there for something like seven and a half years at this point. Um, but just because I, I came from a different world than almost everyone else in the studio, but I knew pretty quickly that it was a place I wanted to stay. And so I just decided that rather than trying to find the job that I had thought I wanted, I would just figure out a way to kind of turn that job into a place that I wanted to be and, and find a niche within that company that made sense. And, um, that helped them out. Like maybe I could provide something that they didn't have. Uh, and in retrospect, I think that's exactly what I did. Which is really interesting. Cause Rachel, something that comes up when I'm working with clients privately, um, more than anything else this notion of people get really frustrated with their job, you know, and by the time I talk to people, a lot of times they're feeling just like physically burnt out. So it's hard to tell, like, is this just the physical burnout or is this they really hate their job? And when we sort of are unpacking kind of both sides of that equation, you know, sometimes it's people don't hate their job. It's just gotten stale for them in some way, or they've gotten into some bad habits with certain things or bad communication habits with certain people. And it it just requires kind of like stepping back and making that position, kind of like molding it around them again. Like yeah, looking to do more of what they like versus what they don't like and how to uh -huh. shift that distribution. Hearing that, and hearing your experience, how did you start to custom fit this job to you? Well, I think part of it is also that I um, had the benefit of working with people that allowed that to happen. Um, so I think I, I took a lot of initiative, but I also am really lucky in that the 
the directors and the management at the company and the founders and the folks that I was working with kind of in the administrative side were open to a lot of feedback. And at the point that I started there, they had just started to grow and it seemed to me like they hadn't really figured out, they knew what they were good at and they were really talented at animation. But all of the folks that were doing the business side, none of them really had a background in business and neither do I, but they all were artists who had just taken on the roles of being the client coordinators and the, um, you know, the, all the biz dev folks and the account people like they were animators and artists who had fallen into those jobs, but didn't necessarily have a background there. Um, and I was a person who wasn't an artist. So I, I wasn't feeling like I was missing out on being part of the creative side of the company. I kind of just wanted to help streamline some of the, the back end stuff, the less glamorous part of the business. Um, which is, although it's what they were doing, it's probably not really what they wanted to be doing. Whereas I was perfectly happy with it um, because I don't come from that artistic background. So they were really open to it. And it, it happened pretty slowly where they would give me more responsibilities. And then I would say, hey, what if I did this? Or is there something else that would be helpful? Or, um, you know, I'd be happy to take this on and pretty much every time that happened, they would say like, sure, let's try that out. Let's see how that goes. Worst case scenario is, um, it doesn't work perfectly and we kind of scale it back. So over time, I think I was able to ask for what I wanted or make suggestions. Um, I think it would work better. It would streamline this process if we added this tool, or maybe I could try to implement this tool and see if I can find a way for it to work. And they would kind of tell me, sure, if that if that works out, then we'll use it. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth that way. But I think that in a lot of ways, I was just really lucky that the, the folks I was working with um, were open to kind of shifting the way that things were happening. So Rachel, a question I have for you, because I'm, I'm always trying to think on this show, like, what are some of the questions or like, sometimes I have certain avatars in mind where people would push back on something a guest would say or, or want to look at it from a different angle. Mm-hmm. And the question that's coming to mind is, you know, here you were in your 20s, coming out of grad school, in this job, asking for more responsibilities. Were you really clear at that point with what your skill set was? Or were you kind of having to learn that on the fly and kind of like, I like doing this, I, I don't like doing this? Because that's something that comes up in my entrepreneurial circles sometimes, like that matching of skills to the work that people want to be doing. Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. So it's interesting because my academic background, um, while I loved it for so many reasons, I don't know how tailored it was to any particular uh, profession. I mean, I was doing humanities and social sciences and things like that. And it was my favorite thing. I was reading all the most interesting texts and um, writing about a lot of theory and all that sort of stuff, which I loved. But assuming I wasn't going to go continue in academia and, and like, you know, get a PhD and kind of stay in that world. 
I do remember feeling when I had finished my coursework in grad school a little bit lost. Like I had spent all of this time um, do like getting this education, but how does it apply to any real world experience? Um, which I think I've learned ways in which it does, but they weren't really skills. It was more ways of thinking about things and ways of re- relating to people, which has turned out to be really useful. Um, but I, I did feel a little bit freaked out by the job market at that point because um, I, I didn't really take any of the classes that were specifically tailored towards those, those skill sets. But I, I did know that I was good um, that I was good at writing, at written communication, um, and also just at with communicating with people in general and kind of organizing and managing. And um, I think one thing that was really useful was I was able to take um, a goal and figure out the specific steps, make a list of, okay, here's how we achieve this. Um, I would need help in executing those things, but I think I could identify at least what the steps were. Um, and especially working in an environment full of animators who are some of the most intensely talented and creative people in the world, the communication piece, um, (laughs) for what, for a lot of them wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that they weren't good at it. It's just not what they wanted to be doing. Um, I, most artists I know don't want to be dealing with people all day. They, they just want to be making their art. And so I was able to come in and say like, well, I can't do anything that you do, but I can communicate on your behalf and kind of be your representative. Um, so I figured that out, which certainly wasn't like a skill that I picked up in my coursework, but it was just something that I had always kind of been able to do. And I was able to see that that was something that was missing from the way the company was being run. So I was able to kind of insert myself into that role. Very cool. Thank you for diving into that. Sure. And one of the other things that you had mentioned a few minutes ago that kind of made my little tail wag as you said (laughs) it was asking for what you wanted. And this is something I I feel like there's a great debate out there that women do negotiate for themselves, that women don't negotiate for themselves. A lot of what I see are, at least in terms of my practice and my private conversations with clients, there is a lot of negotiating on behalf of other people as part of their job. Mm -hmm. And I was really good at that back in the day when I was working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy and used to have to fight with a bank syndicate every day at three o'clock. But negotiating for ourselves can sometimes be scary and what was that experience like for you? Were you nervous about it? How did you break it down and, and make a move? Um, so when I started doing it, I, I didn't really have a particular goal in mind. Like when I first started going into my boss's office and saying, I need something more to do, it wasn't really a play to get a promotion. It was really more that I'm bored and I need <laughs> to pass the time. Like I've you know, I answer the phone, but it wasn't filling eight hours a day. And at some point I had played all the minesweeper that someone can play. And I just was like, I need something. There's, there's gotta be something more useful I can be doing. Um, so I think at that point I wasn't nervous about it because my goal wasn't, I wasn't going in there and saying like, 
hey, I really need a promotion um, and I and I want my title to be this and I'd like to be doing this. It really was purely, I don't have a lot to do. Can you put something on my plate? Because the days go by very slowly when I don't have a lot of responsibility and I just don't want to stare at the clock. It was That was really my intention. And then over time, it sort of changed into, I think I can achieve more here and I think I can help the company more and in so doing help myself more. Um, but I'd already kind of established that relationship, especially with this one particular boss. Um, so it made that a little bit less nerve wracking. Um, but I do find, and, and the more I've noticed myself doing this, the more I've tried to kind of retrain myself away from it. But I think when women ask for things that they want, they always temper it. Um, and they start, they come from like an apologetic place. So saying things like, hey, I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe it would be possible if X, Y, and Z. <laughs> um, and, I, and I speak that way and I write that way and I interact with other women that do that. And I find that while a lot of people might do that, I do think that's kind of a gendered approach to thing where, where you're immediately apologizing for whatever it is that you want or what you need by saying, I just need this thing and maybe you could help me out possibly if it's not too much trouble. Um, and as I've noticed myself doing that, I've tried to get away from it. Um, because I think it's such a ridiculous, it just weakens your position immediately. And you're already sort of agreeing to, or you've already sort of acknowledged that the answer is probably going to be no. And you've already kind of started to step away from it. Even as you're asking for it, you're saying you're giving the person an out. I completely understand if this isn't possible, but this is what I would like. I It's something that I still struggle with. Um, but every time I notice myself doing it, I try and rephrase that in my head. Or if I'm writing an email and the first word in the email is just, I immediately delete that. Just checking <laughs> in to see if you received this. Um, it, I just think it, see, I just did it right there. It, um, it weakens your position. It sounds like you're coming from such a, more passive place and is so apologetic right off the bat. Absolutely. What have you found as some better workarounds for that language? Um, I, that's a great question. I honestly would have to go back and look at what I've been saying instead. Um, but I think it, kind of comes from this place where women, especially as girls, when we're growing up, you know, we're told that the best, we're always praised for being polite and cooperative. Um, and all these things that in a lot of ways, while they work really well in a business environment, um, we're told that they're sort of counterintuitive to what a professional space should be like, yes, it should be cooperative, um, but that it should also be assertive and, and all sorts of other things that were that at least as young girls were always kind of pushed away from being. Um, so I, it's always trying to find that balance between being likable enough that you can get what you need and not in a manipulative way, but you know, if you just need an answer from someone and you're very stern about it, maybe they'll blow that off. But if you're too 
weak and apologetic about it, then they're not really going to tell you what you need. So trying to walk that line and find that balance of being um, polite and likable enough that people will want to work with you, but also straightforward um, and not giving people these outs all the time that I think women are so used to approaching things in that way. Because Rachel, is that something you learned as you Peggy olson your way up the ladder? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it wasn't something that I was thinking about at all when I started at this company or in any previous job. And I think maybe I learned a lot of that from the the women's studies classes I took and the feminist theory and, and all of these other things that I did in school, but I wasn't really seeing, seeing how those applied to my day-to-day life. And the more that I'm able to connect those um, academic things to the practical things that I'm doing, um, the more satisfied I think I become with how how all those interactions are going and, um, you know, how successful I am and all those sorts of things. So it's just constantly looking for ways to utilize that knowledge and bring it into my, my day-to-day life and my behavior. And, and not only the way that I approach things and how I carry myself, but also just the way that I respond to other people. And it's, I mean, I'm constantly working on that. I don't, think anyone has really figured out exactly what that balance is, but being aware of the things that we do and say that are not working for us is a really good start. Absolutely. I know I'm always studying that myself, and it's a rabbit hole the size of the universe. Yeah, it's a terrifying thing to think about. Um, (laughs) Because no one really, no one really wants to look that closely at themselves and think, what am I doing that is holding me back or that's turning people away or that's preventing me from getting this? It's so much easier to put that on someone else or, you know, just to vaguely put it on the universe. Um, And it gets really scary when you try and pinpoint those specific things. But I try and tackle one or two of them at a time, I think. That's a really great approach. What you're describing in terms of you can't fix everything about yourself and your style of communication and approach and all of those things, but you can pick off one or two things at a time and and be working towards it is really awesome. Yeah, I mean, I it's hard to say whether I'm actually making any improvements or, or succeeding at that, but um, I think just being aware of it. And I know for me, when I get feedback, um, you know, constructive feedback from people about either something that I'm doing professionally or just my personality and and how um, I'm dealing with people that my initial response is to get very defensive about that and and say like, well, that's not really about me. That says more about you than it does about me or something. Um, And I think most people probably do that because it's so hard to confront those Um, those flaws in ourselves. Um, But when you hear them more than once, it's a little bit harder to put that off on other people. So rather than trying to have that defensive response, um, I every once in a while will try and hone in on one or two of those things and then think about what might be some productive ways of, of improving on those. And sometimes it directly has to do with 
how I'm uh, interacting with coworkers or, or doing at my job, kind of like that, um, that apologetic approach to things. Uh, one specific, I think I actually read an article about this, about the gendered language that people use in the workplace and ways that men talk about certain situations versus the way that their female colleagues talk about them. And one of them was um, when we're late to reply to a, an email or some communication that, um, and I know I do this, that I'll write, I'm so sorry. It, I apologize. It took me so long to get back to you, or I apologize for the delay. It, I think the article said that sort of like the masculine take on that is thank you for your patience. Um, and so I've started saying that in emails um, just to, as an experiment to see if I'm going to get a different response from people. So, you know, it might only be three or four days after I've gotten um, the email, but when I respond, instead of saying, I'm sorry that, you know, it took me a week to get back to you, I say, thank you for your patience. I don't know yet if that um, is going to make a big difference, but I'm interested to see and to think about other ways that those small decisions that we make and the, and the way we communicate change our position in those conversations. So I'm looking for more things like that, things that I can adjust um, that come from a more assertive place. Very cool. Very cool. And I, I feel like I'm always playing with my language like that and thinking about or trying to step back and understand like how is what I'm saying going to land on someone mm-hmm. and especially when it's being interpreted yeah and especially via email like you know I was laughing because I I use Grammarly like to correct emails <laughs> like it's uh-huh. attached to my browser and it's funny I forget what what the exact number was but it, I write emails longer than you know like 90% of people using Grammarly or something <laughs> because I'm so and especially the personal nature of some of the emails that I get, you know, when I get an initial email from a client, you know, at like 1030 at night, that's like, I'm completely burnt out. And I don't know why I haven't called you, but I've been looking at your business card for like a year. And for the love of God, I just can't do this anymore. (laughs) Like, Uh I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I hate my job. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm so stressed out. I'm so burnt out. Like, I feel like I have to be extra careful in those moments, you know, about the language I use and be sensitive to the fact that, like, there is a real person with real emotions behind this email and not just be like, cool, let's talk. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, and I I always try, as I try and change those patterns, I want to make sure not to overcorrect because I think part of it is that um, some of those tactics, some of those, like, blunt, straight to the point, um you know, the, the people that are writing those traditionally shorter emails. I think that that is also kind of this, um, traditionally masculine feminine way of dealing with things. And I don't want to overcorrect and then decide that this, um, giving a lot of personal energy and time and thought and maybe over explaining or overwriting or whatever I'm doing, maybe some of that is really good and it shouldn't be devalued just because, you know, this is something that women are doing. Um, and I certainly don't want to change all my patterns and say like, well, men at work do this. So that's what I should be doing. But I think there are instances where those sorts of responses get, um, 
get a better return. Um, but I also want to make sure that I'm valuing the things that have really helped me one, be true to who I am, but also get where I am, which I've done by being myself. And I also write very long emails and have gotten that feedback before. Um, I've even gotten that feedback in, um, in the other part of my life where I send booking emails for bands. And I've been told that a lot of, uh, talent buyers want to see a shorter email and I've kind of played around with that. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I like this. I think it gives the right amount of context. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I think there's, um, some benefit to, to doing it my way. So, um, yeah, I just, I want to be careful that I'm not taking too much consideration into kind of what the traditional ways of doing things are, because I think there's a lot to be said for, um, kind of bucking the norm and doing what you feel good about doing. And it's an interesting balance because I think you raise a great point. Like my voice, for example, when I write copy for my website or answer emails, I want it to sound like I talk. I mean, which is a, a weird sort of thing to to kind of say. I mean, it's not very scholarly or academic for certain, but I think it's important, especially in the work that I do, that that it it's transparent. Like who Kara is as a person is the same Kara that you would be working with or is the same Kara that you'd be talking to on the podcast. Sure. I mean, you're part of the project. Yeah. And what you're doing, especially in the podcast is storytelling. And if your voice isn't coming through, then how good of a storyteller can you really claim to be, you know, taking too much personality out of any, uh, interaction I think is always going to be harmful. So yeah. it's always just about finding that balance and, um, yeah, making sure you're kind of walking, walking that line, which is such an, I think that's where a lot of my exhaustion and probably a lot of other people, especially women where their exhaustion comes from is trying to figure out what that line is, you know, um, to be, to be cooperative, but not overly sensitive or, um, to be, feminine, but also assertive or all of these sort of dichotomies that we're expected to, uh, embody at the same time. And that, that tug between those two extremes, um, in some ways, I think that's a really useful exercise to try and figure that out. But I think that's where a lot of burnout comes from. Absolutely. And Rachel, we could geek out about this all day and all night, I'm sure. But you you raised an important point and something else I really wanted to hear from your story is about a year ago, you started a side hustle as the owner and manager of Jet or Not Management. How yeah. did that all come about? Because you are so, jugg- so not only are you juggling your language, but you're juggling two worlds. Yeah, totally. Well, um, it's actually not. I, the longer I've been doing it, the more I, I see the parallels between my day job and my night job, I guess. But um, how that happened was, obviously, I, I live in Austin, which is the live music capital. Um, so pretty quickly after I moved here, uh, a lot of the friends that I made early on were musicians, um, or if not, then they sort of hovered. I always think about the communities, at least the communities of people that I've always known in Austin, that they're there tend to be sort of these hubs 
around bands or around venues or around groups of bands that play shows together and that there are like these families that get built around um around these bands or these music communities and pretty quickly after I moved here I got pulled into one of those sort of band centric families um and I through someone that I was working with at a job that I had in grad school who had gone to undergrad at UT with um, a couple of guys in this band. I started to go see their shows, and then I met the band members. I met the wives and girlfriends and roommates and friends of the band members and kind of got pulled into that circle. Um, And it became a really beautiful sort of uh, community of people because it's – obviously, I love being around people that are making art. That's what I – do at powerhouse. Um, and I found that these communities, these families of musicians and their friends and their supporters, um, it was just a really lovely and sort of, uh, affirming group of people because they were working really hard at something that they loved and that they wanted to be doing. Um, and they were doing it together as a team and all the people around them were also helping them and supporting them and going to their shows and, you know, helping to stuff, records or to promote their gigs or um, put up posters or whatever it was. And I kind of just fell into that crowd. And over time, I've um, met a lot of other bands and a lot of other band families through that part of my social life. And so a couple years ago, um, one of the singer-songwriters that I was spending some time with, he and I had become really good friends. And he had said to me a couple of times um, that he wished I was his manager. And I kind of <laughs> laughed that off. I thought, you know, we were just, we were out drinking and we were going to see a show and he would say, like, you should manage me. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and I never really thought that was serious because I didn't know what that was. Um, and one day he sat me down. Um, it was actually just before South by Southwest, so a little bit over a year ago. He sat me down and said, I'm actually 100% serious. Um, I know you think I'm kind of joking, but I think you would make a really great manager. And would you be open to doing that? Um, and the nice thing was that not only was he one of my favorite people, but he was one of my very favorite songwriters. And I was so in love with him as a musician that I thought, okay, if I'm going to dive into this thing, at least I know that this is that his art is something that I can really get behind and that I would be thrilled to be associated with because um, he was so talented and um I was in awe of him as a songwriter. So I said, sure, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds like a lot of fun, but I'm going to ask you a ton of questions because I have no idea how to manage (laughs) a songwriter or a band. Or I didn't know. I would go to all his shows and my other friends' bands would play his shows, but I didn't even know who was booking those, who was initiating that. Are the venues reaching out to you? Are you reaching out to them? Like, how, how is this even happening? How did you put out your last record? What does that cost? How do you go on tour? Who are you talking to? I didn't know any of it, <laughs> even though I was around in the community. I had never thought about it. So um, he asked me, and I said yes, and then proceeded to ask him a billion questions. But I also kind of put together a rough business plan, which was sort of a glorified outline of here's things that, you're doing well. Here's things that I think you could improve. Here's some ideas I have for not knowing anything really about how 
the the music industry works here's some things that I think we should figure out or talk about or fig- or you know make some steps to get to here here's where your focus should be um so it was a good relationship at that point because I was already in the groove of sort of organizing and managing artists in my day job um and negotiating on their behalf figuring out what they were worth and how um how long things would take and what opportunities we wanted to take versus turn down. Um, so I started kind of doing that for him thinking that I would just spend a couple hours a week working with him as a songwriter and helping him. And then that too evolved pretty quickly into something else. Something else as in more hours, more work. Yeah. Into this, into this, brand that I've started. Um, I don't know if I can call it a company cause I haven't actually registered it as an official <laughs> as it's Wait. just me. Um, but it turned into this jet or not management. Now, um, that songwriter that I started it with actually moved back home to Oregon a few months ago. Um, so I'm no longer working with him, but I currently have four bands on my roster that I, um, represent and manage, kind of, I do kind of different things for all of them, but, um, I certainly never thought when he asked me last March, if I would manage him that a year later I would have four bands on, on my roster that I'm working with. So, um, that, that happened kind of, kind of fast, but has been a lot of fun. And I think it's going to continue for a little while. So Rachel, the obvious question that comes to mind is there are a lot of people that I would talk to that are standing on the precipice of that question, would you be my manager? And you not knowing, really, it sounds like a whole lot other than the fan side of the, yeah, maybe some like of the business music. side. I think it's good. I think more people should listen to it and you should make more money doing it. But I didn't know how any of that happened. So I think a lot of people standing in your shoes at that moment would be so freaked the fuck out (laughs) that they would say no and they would miss out on this opportunity to learn. What allowed you in that moment to say yes? Um, That's a good question. I mean, part of it for me was that I really – I really believed in him as a musician um, and we were very close friends and I was kind of willing if I think I also trusted him as a, as a judge of character. And I thought if he thinks that I'll be good at this, if he wants to put his music career somewhat in my hands, knowing that I've never done this before. And if he sees in me something um, that he values, then he, you know, he can't be totally wrong about that. So what, what's the harm in, in trying it out? I, I don't think that I ever would have thought, or I never would have approached him and said, Hey, I would love to do this. But knowing that he was in a position where he knew what, what he needed and sort of what skills and tools he was lacking and what sort of help he wanted. And knowing me very well at the time looked at me and thought, this person will be very good at, at these things that 
I'm looking for. I kind of just trusted him and said, okay, then you tell me what it is that you, that you're looking for me to do. And let's see if this is a fit. Um, but I think it's, it was a matter of trying to view myself through his lens and say, it's so easy to doubt yourself and, and say, I'm unprepared for this. And, I'm in over my head and I still feel that way about things all the time. And I think everyone feels that way about things, that imposter syndrome of yes. when are people going to figure out that I have no fucking clue what I'm doing and I'm just faking it. I certainly <laughs> felt that way, but I also felt like he's put some thought into this and decided that I could be a real help to him. So um, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and and dive right in and see if I can full kind of fulfill this notion that he had about me. Um, and then what happened was other, other bands and, um, club owners and people that I knew in the industry saw me working with him or saw sort of the outcomes that came out of me working with him and just started, I started getting all sorts of organic people. I knew musicians I knew coming up to me at um, bars and at venues and saying like, Hey, I want to talk to you about management. I know you're working with Ben. Can you work with me also? And for several months I was saying like, no, of course not. I have a full-time job. Like when would I do that? (laughs) Um, And turning people down. And then over time, as I kind of learned a little bit more how it worked, realizing that I had more um, capacity to do this than I thought. So, um, yeah, I think it was just believing if someone's asking you to do something that they think you can do, then who are you to say, I don't know how to do that thing? You know, maybe maybe they have a a better impression of your capability than you have. And it sounds like from the beginning there was this there was conversation on both sides that you kind of both put your heads together and realize that this could be a synergistic relationship. Like you, your skill set was filling some of the gaps that he needed and vice versa. Absolutely. And I still look at it that way. When I talk to new bands about taking them on, it's, it's never just, here's what I can provide for you. It's always, here's what I can do for you. But also in having your name associated with me and with my brand, that's also going to lend me some, some more credibility that's going to open up some avenues for me that I didn't have access to before as you guys achieve stuff as a band that reflects positively on me and in exchange gives me better footing to to work with people so we're making each other look good Um, and that's been really important to me is to say you know I can help you do this and I can I can represent you and speak to people on your behalf and like kind of validate what you're doing in that way. But you're also validating me by saying we believe in uh, we believe in this um, project and we want to put our name next to yours. So um, that's kind of been my favorite thing about doing it is that it's not one party working for the other party it's us putting our head together and saying here's what we both want to achieve and how can we find a way to help each other do that and it's been really it's been really fun and really satisfying and um sometimes really exhausting but 
yeah, I've really, I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed it. What I find interesting too is, I mean, you know, as well as I do be, you're in the music industry. It's a tough go for women in that industry. And then it's interesting, like here you were at Powerhouse and you were what, like in the 20% 20 of the staff maybe when you started was women? Yeah, about. How, it's, I'm not even sure what the actual question is, but I'm so curious because you have this background in women and gender studies (laughs) and then your day job has you working in a mostly male, but I think growing female industry. Yeah, absolutely. And then in music is so male heavy as well. So how do you, how do you navigate or reconcile all of that? Um, so the, as far as, um, my day job goes, my powerhouse animation, the really great thing is that even though, um, that company has always been, has always had a higher percentage of men. And now I think we're 35, 40% female. It's, um, it's changing quite a bit, but I never really got that male dominated sense being in that company. Although I did get it a lot from clients that we would work with. So a lot of our biggest clients are video game studios. And I, um, you know, would walk into a meeting in a conference room with 12 people and I would be the only woman in the room. Um, and maybe I'd be the only woman in the game they're making or, you know, whatever. So that was a bit of a struggle, but also, in a weird way made me feel like I was in a position of power because when you're so outnumbered that way, it, when I would speak up in a meeting, I do kind of feel like everyone would, um, they would take notice because I think they were recognizing that I was, I seemed maybe like I was out of my element in this, in this environment. So if I had something that I wanted to contribute Um, it seemed like they were all paying attention to that, but I never really had to deal with any of, of that sort of patriarchal old boys club nonsense within my actual company. Um, I did, I do definitely have some, uh, some stories about things that happened with, um, with clients that way, but that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) Um, and I think the music industry is a bit that way as well, although, I do know a lot of women, especially in the the local Austin music scene, that are making some really big waves. Um, there is a talent buyer who, who works for a couple different venues who um, is a woman who's one of my favorite people to work with and will sometimes complain about interactions that, that we've had with um, with people in this industry. But she... Um, has really made a name for herself in the Austin scene. And one of the bands that I rep is fronted by a woman. She's the the main songwriter and the um, lead singer. And it's been an interesting experience working with her as opposed to working with like the other male songwriters and kind of seeing the difference in the way that we sort of delegate things or the way that we collaborate on stuff. Um, but I think Austin's kind of a unique environment in that there are a lot of female promoters, club owners, musicians, all sorts of things. Certainly not 50%, um, but there there definitely is a big uh, push towards that. And there are often 
um, shows that'll be only, you know, female fronted bands, um, and things like that. So people are paying attention. Um, but it's always going to be, it's always going to be a struggle to have people take you seriously in, in certain environments. But I also think that the, the folks that are dismissive of you for those sorts of reasons, um, whether they admit that it's because you're a woman or any number of other things. Um, I don't really have time for, for those people anyway. So, um, if, if that's the response that I'm getting that sort of antagonistic or dismissive or, um, whatever it might be, then I'm, I'm kind of done dealing with that person anyway. Well, especially considering the time that you have to devote to your side hustle, right? Like if you're yeah. hitting those kind of brick walls, instead yeah, of dismantling the wall, yeah. just go around it or, or move yeah. in a different direction. <laughs> and ideally, you know, we all have time to fight those fights, but you got to pick your battles. And um, sometimes it's just not worth it to engage in, in those situations. You're not going to solve every problem that's out there. So I'm doing the best I can. But um, yeah, sometimes I'm just avoiding that. Yeah, we don't have to put on our, our, our Wonder Woman bracelets for everything. True. <laughs> hey, I'm going to see that in a couple hours. That's my agenda tonight after this. After we're done recording, I'm headed out to see Wonder Woman. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Rachel, this may come off as a sort of sideways question, but I think apt considering both of your careers that you're balancing. Both of your roles tend to require a lot of, I would say, luck and pluck, right? To make things happen on a day-to-day basis. How do you create or manifest opportunities for yourself? Um, I I really love that question. And I've been trying to think about that over the last couple days. And I think part of it is that I... Now that you've asked that, I'm going to start paying attention to that a lot more. But um, I think sort of similar to the way that I changed my role at Powerhouse, um, it's really just letting people know that you're open to things, that you're even just sort of dropping a hint that um, you're looking around for some opportunities or honestly just asking for them. Um, which is what I do a lot in both of my jobs, whether it's emailing a potential client or a past client and saying, Hey, here's some projects that we've just wrapped up. If you guys have anything on the horizon, you know, I'm just checking in to see, um, let me know if anything comes up, but with management, often it's running into people or reaching out to people I know and saying, Hey, I just picked up this new band and here's a link to their EP or, or their website or whatever it is. Or, you know, I'm working with this band, but they just went back in the studio to record a record. Um, And I, you know, I'm letting you know that in case anything comes up. Are there any shows at your venue they might be a good fit for? Um, You know, maybe you want to play this song on the radio. It's, It's really just having the confidence, I guess, to reach out to those people. And knowing the worst thing that can happen is that, nothing will come of it, that they'll ignore it or they won't like it. Um, but they're never going to be angry at you for trying. Um, so, oh, and a lot of it in, in the music industry is just being, uh, 
present. So I think part of why Ben initially asked me to do this and why I've kind of um, grown that that part of my life a little bit is that I'm out and about at shows, seeing bands, talking to people all the time. And a lot of the time it's just an organic conversation that I'll see someone out and I'll mention, oh, I'm working with this person and this person and they've got this going on and this show on the books and blah, blah, blah. And it might just, you know, kind of, as you said, uh, get your, t- what did you say? Your tail, your tail was wagging. My tail was wagging. <laughs> yeah. So like it, you know, they might just have that idea of like, Oh, now that you mentioned, or now that I'm seeing you, would one of your bands be interested in this opportunity? So some of it is kind of just being, it's sort of like the, I think bullshit that people say about dating where they're like, just, you know, just put yourself out there which I think in romantic scenarios, it doesn't really work that way. But um, in professional ones, I kind of think it does. Like you're you're just out and you're present and um, letting people know what you're up to and asking them what they're up to. And those opportunities kind of just manifest in those conversations sometimes. Great point. Great point. And Rachel, I have to ask this question. I'm dying at this point. Okay. I'm nervous. No. <laughs> so you have a day job. Uh-huh. You have your side hustle. Uh-huh. And you were talking about being out and about and kind of being present and available and on the scene for this serendipity to kind of take place. Sure. When do you sleep? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I... I sleep a, a decent amount. I think it's other things in my life that end up going by the wayside. Um, so like some of the self-care stuff other than sleep, I will decide I'll try and make it a priority to work out a certain number of times or cook a certain number of times a week. And then a show will come up and I'll realize like, Oh, I don't have time for either of those. I'm going to rush home and change clothes and go out to the show and then come home and fall into bed so that I can go to work in the morning. Um, so I end up, I mean, sometimes I'll have really late nights, but I end up trying to keep a, a decent schedule during the week. But there are a lot of other things that I'd like to spend time doing that end up kind of getting overrun. Um, but sometimes I'll also just kind of shut down for a couple days and, um, I need at least one or two evenings a week where I don't have any responsibilities and I can just come home and, um, I won't really answer my phone unless it's emergency and I won't make a plan with anyone. Um, even if it's just to go get a drink, I'll usually try and block off at least usually one weeknight and, and maybe one weekend during the day where I don't I'm not obligated to anyone and I can just do whatever it is that I need to do I really appreciate your honesty around this question because I think sometimes I invite people to the show and they think that they have to give me this you know wonderful morning routine plan or nighttime routine or all of this like really indulgent self-care Oh, no, I'm shitty at that. And I'm terrible at mornings. I snooze. You know, I'm 33. (laughs) And I've had this job that I work the same hours every day for seven and a half years. And I'll still snooze my alarm six times in the morning and then end up scrambling to try and get to work on time. (laughs) I've never, ever solved that. And I know that my parents especially thought that after high school or after college that as I grew up, I would get better at those sorts of uh, 
self-care morning routine, you know, just like waking up and being ready for the day. And I've never achieved that. I'm, I hate mornings. I just always want to stay in bed, even though I like my job and I like going to it. Every time my alarm goes off, there's that moment of like, fuck you. I just want to go back to sleep. <laughs> so, um, no, I'm, I'm definitely not good at that. And I don't know if I ever will be. How do you figure <laughs> out what's a healthy level of busy versus that unhealthy level of busy? Um, do you monitor that? I mean, I think it's just a feeling that I get. Um, I, I'll start to feel mentally and psychologically run down before I'll really feel too physically run down. Cause I think everyone is tired all the time, you know, um, like complaining, I might have gotten eight hours of sleep last night and had a really productive day and I'll still come home and I'll feel tired, but it's more sometimes I just really need to shut my brain down or I'll start snapping at people that haven't done anything at all and certainly don't deserve to be snapped at and I'll you know I'll just get frustrated about little things and that's when I know oh I need to take maybe tonight's the night that I need to take a breather and just um, separate myself because that's not productive for anyone Um, but I also I prefer to be busy and I think that I'm more productive when I have more to do. If I have, like, let's say it's Sunday and I wake up and I have one thing on my, like, I'm, you know, all I need to do today is go grocery shopping and do the laundry and I don't really have any emails I need to respond to and, uh, you know, I I don't have any work I need to catch up on. That's all I need to do. Those are the days that I end up getting absolutely nothing done. That it's 10 p.m. and I haven't done the laundry Um, whereas if I wake up and I have a whole list of here's 15 things I need to knock out today, those are my most productive days. So, um, even my boss at my day job had told me, you know, when I told him I was taking on this management stuff, I was worried that he was going to think that, that, that company was no longer my priority, um, which it absolutely is. And he's even kind of pointed out to me that, he thinks it's made me a better employee to have this other job because when I have a lot of things going on, I'm more focused um, and I get things done faster. Whereas if I know I've got one thing I have to, even if I go into work and it's a slow day, um, the couple things I have to do that day, I think I don't do them quite as well as I would if I had 30 things I had to do. Um, so I prefer to be a good amount of busy, but I can also definitely tell when I start to get very frustrated with people that that's time to take a break. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is like the mental fatigue sets in for you first, and that's usually your clue. Like, uh-oh, the wheels are going to start falling off the bus soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I totally agree with with your notion of, you know, when you are busy, and it's the word busy, I'm I'm having this weird friction just around that word so much and so frequently these days um, because it's like a double-edged sword, right? Like sometimes we use busy as like a cop-out, right? It's I'm busy, I'm busy, and we overschedule ourselves and we overload ourselves to the point where we can't even function anymore. Or busy can be this 
this kind of cattle prod in a way to kind of keep us more engaged and not letting every single task expand to the size of the the yeah, time you absolutely. have to to put it in. I always if I have too much time to think about something that should be simple. I'm gonna yeah, totally exhaust myself and and overanalyze the hell out of it. So I think it it is better when it's like I just have to knock this out and get on to the next thing. I think it the the work I do is probably a little bit truer that way too, because I haven't absolutely just beaten it to death and had too much time to go back and forth on it. Well, yeah, you can make more intuitive judgment. Like you can bring more intuition to the process when it's like, okay, I've got an hour and a half to finish this task and I can't perseverate on it beyond that point. Like, you're going to go with your cleanest, most intuitive hit, usually. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And Rachel, you mentioned having things on a list. And I don't know if you know this, but a project I'm working on is collecting 33,000 handwritten task lists from women. (gasps) Yeah, I want to make some art. I Um, love that. But also the old CPA and data analyst in me loves the idea of like what are women actually putting on their list and how are they using it and what does this all mean um so it's still quite it's you know i think i have 400 or 500 lists at this point from incredible yeah it's a it's a slow process but that's where this next question is born out of okay which is how do you organize and manage your tasks on a day-to-day basis like what's your process look like Um, so I definitely make a lot of lists, um, for sure. I think there's nothing quite as satisfying as crossing something off a list. Um, and sometimes that satisfaction is so good that I'll break down tasks into small pieces so that I can cross more things (laughs) off the list, even though they're really just subsets of this one. Um, so for example, I had my, my best friends getting married in a few months and their weddings in Mexico. And I, so I, I needed to renew my passport. And so on my list of things to do, it said renew passport. Well, then I realized that really what I needed to do was to go get a passport photo taken and to fill out the paperwork and then to actually mail that, all that package off. And it, it wasn't satisfying enough for me to just have it say renew passport. So I, changed I modified the list for each of those tasks so that when I went and got my passport photos taken I could cross that piece off the list um which is just for me but it felt like I had really done something that day so yeah um, it's it's insane because I know I'm doing that but I'm still like that made me feel great um one big thing for me and when my friends notice this they make a lot of fun of me but my google calendar um, basically runs my entire life. And I have, uh, my friend James actually, who, um, is the groom in this, in this Mexico wedding that I was just talking about, um, pointed this out to me once and has never stopped making fun of me that when I put things on my Google calendar that I have this like embedded code, um, and it'll, I'll put something on there that I'll say like podcast with Kara and it'll either have like one question mark or four question marks, or one exclamation (laughs) point, or four exclamation points, or none of those things. And depending on what punctuation I've used, that is an indication of how set in stone this appointment is. 
So you have like a um, meter almost. Yeah. So if there's like four question marks, then that's like probably a 30% chance that I'm doing that thing. If there's one question mark, then that's closer to like a 50, 50. Um, if there's like eight exclamation points, then it means like I will absolutely like walk through fire in order to make it to this <laughs> appointment. Um, and he noticed it once he was like looking over my shoulder and he, um, he and his, then girlfriend, now fiance, used to live here in Austin and have since moved away. And so I'll schedule time to like FaceTime with them. And sometimes they'll message me and be like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Can we FaceTime? And I'll say like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm putting it on my calendar. And he'll say, how many exclamation points? <laughs> um, so, but I'll put things on there, like do my laundry and go to the store and check email. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much I've become reliant on this tool, but it's sort of like not only my, my normal meetings and appointments and the shows that my bands are playing and all these things, like, of course those are all in there, but I'll schedule in time for myself. I'll even schedule like workout or, um, if I have to run certain errands, I'll put those on my calendar at a certain block of the day because, that way I'm way less likely to blow them off and also to forget about them. But my lists have sort of manifested themselves now into just being part of the calendar. So not only am I figuring out what I need to do, but I'm actually blocking off the time when I'm going to do that thing so that when I get to it, if I don't do it, I have to find another place and move it to the next day or the next week or whatever. Um, and it makes me, it makes me less of a procrastinator because I feel so guilty it's a different kind of guilt not crossing the thing off, having to physically move that event to another day. I hate doing that. So that's my that's my new list making is just my insane Google calendar, which if you looked at it has, you know, seventy-five different colors of it's it's really um a pretty terrifying tool <laughs> that I've created and, and locked myself into, but it works for me. And that's the key. And I think that's the part of my fascination with this question is we all, ha I mean, there's a finite amount of tools, but we're all using them so differently. And what I love hearing is that your, your to-do items, like the things you have to get done, you're actually finding a time and space to put them in, not just like nebulous, like go to the grocery store, but then scheduling yourself for 20 out of 24 of the hours that you have in a day. Yeah, I'll I'll literally put all of that stuff on my calendar. And I usually don't let people see it because I know it makes me look like a neurotic freak show to say, like, <laughs> um, I don't know, go dress shopping for you know, such and such event. And it's like 630 on Tuesday, whereas it, it could just be on in my mind as something to do. Like, I have to put it on the calendar or else it's like I never have time to do this thing. Um, and it helps me when people uh, when people ask me you know, hey, can you meet up this week for a drink? I'm like, let me look at my calendar and see what I'm going grocery shopping. And I'll work, you know, our social time, I'll, you know, work it around that or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's how I've made all of my plans for the past several years is just through that calendar. Fantastic. Well, thank you for giving us a glimpse. You don't actually sure. have to show us a picture Please of it. Please don't look but... at it. it is, <laughs> it's very intense. And 
Rachel, I want to ask you some of the other champagne questions, which are questions I like to serve all of my guests. And, you know, we we touched on it a little bit earlier, that there probably wasn't as much of a routine in the morning other than hitting snooze. Mm-hmm. But if you Gotta had to look snooze. at like the AM and or the PM, like what are your most impactful habits? Like what allows you to get everything done that you need to get done? Um, well, something that I've started to do recently um, is when I get up in the morning, so I'm, you know, I'm snoozing or I'm reading my email or whatever I'm doing in bed. And usually I'll, I'll do that for a long time to avoid getting up. But what I've started doing recently actually is when I wake up, um, I'll find a podcast and I'll turn that on. Um, and that'll kind of be the soundtrack of me getting, getting ready to go out. Sorry, there's, I see someone approaching my front door who I don't recognize and is knocking. Do you can want we to- take a pause really quick and yeah. I can go see what is happening? Go for it. Okay. Sorry. Hold on one second. Sorry about that. No worries. I'm glad it I didn't. It makes me nervous when people I don't know approach my home when I'm here by myself. So I thought I would figure out what that was. But he just wanted to talk to me about some environmental campaign. I was- and I said, I don't care about the earth, man. Get out of here. <laughs> I was, as soon as you get up, I was like, you know what? Please don't let me have to listen to Rachel get cut up into little pieces tonight. Or like That's some- actually a great segue because, so I listen to podcasts in the morning and it just like turns, it makes my brain more alert as opposed to just like, you know, checking Facebook or whatever terrible habits I do when I'm lying in bed. But honestly, most of the podcasts that I've been listening to are these like ridiculous true crime murder podcast which have just infected my brain to where I think every totally innocuous situation I'm like what if this is what if this is about to be like some tragic murder scenario um but that was not he just wanted to talk to me about the environment so everything's fine um but yeah I'm glad I didn't have to put you in that witness situation as (laughs) It would definitely add some spice to my Tuesday. <laughs> oh, man. I can't imagine what the intro would be to this podcast if <laughs> it was like, well, she answered the door in the middle of it and she was never seen or heard from again. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Let's I know. not think about it. Let's not think oh, about it. <laughs> he was wearing a backpack. Like, how dangerous could he really be? One never knows these days. That's true. That's true. Um, so, anyway, yeah. So, my new routine is that rather than laying in bed and like perusing all the social media and reading all the news that's come out since the last night, which is usually just depressing and makes me never want to get out of bed is that I won't look at any of that. And I'll just turn on whatever podcast I was listening to the night before. And it'll just, it'll just turn my brain on enough that I can get up and like start getting ready for work. Um, But I'm starting to, hear people talking and that's like helping me sort of adjust to the morning because like I said, I'm a terrible morning person. Um, so, and it sounds like lets your brain start percolating as well. Like you're, you've got something to, to chew on mentally. Like I'm just thinking about something as opposed to, you know, just kind of going about the finding something to wear and, you know, all man, I just hate mornings, but Turn it on a podcast. It it helps wake me up a lot faster. Awesome. 
And what about habits in the PM? Like, I know some people have, like, sort of their sleep ceremony before they wind down at night, and then other people kind of have, like, their end of the workday sort of transitional routine. Are there any particularly impactful habits that you can think of that listeners would want to know? Um, There's one thing that I've started doing. I actually started doing it January 1st of last year, so I'm about a, a year and a half into this project, but... I I always wanted to be a person who kept a journal. I loved the idea of documenting things and going back to see what was happening in my life. Um, but I, it would always be one of those sort of New Year's resolutions, and I would do it for a week, and then it would fall by the wayside. So what I started doing and have kept up with is that I bought a, jar, a big, like one of those oversized mason jars at the beginning of last year. And at the end of every day before I go to sleep, Um, or sometimes if I'm very drunk, then the next morning, but usually before I go to sleep, I will grab a scrap of paper, you know, just rip off the back of a receipt or whatever it is that I have scribble the date on it. And then I write down the, the best thing that happened to me that day. And I fold that up and I put it in the jar. So, um, at the end of the year, I have this jar full of these 365 beautiful memories that took place. And one thing is that it gives me some routine, but also I found that when I have a bad day or just an overwhelmingly emotional day, that it's an excuse for me to reflect on the fact that every day there's at least one positive thing that happens. And those, the notes in those jars, which I haven't gone back to go through yet, because I feel like I'm not far enough removed from them, but they can range anywhere from something as small as like I had a really delicious sandwich or a great cup of coffee or, <laughs> you know, a coworker brought me a candy bar or like some silly thing. Or sometimes it's like I reconnected with an old friend or I closed on a house or I got a promotion or um, there's there's a whole range of things that I've written down. Um, and sometimes, like I said, when it's been a bad day, it might be that I discovered a new TV show that made me laugh or, you know, I fell asleep on the couch and the cat took a nap with me or something really small. But at least before I go to sleep, it, it allows me to kind of change the perspective of that day. And if I'm really frustrated about something, it forces me to write down this one positive moment. Um, and I think that's been a nice way of sort of ending each day, either if I've had a great day to sort of immortalize that great thing by putting it in this jar um, or just to, to turn me around and, and not go to bed angry or frustrated. That is really awesome. And I think, you know, especially because I work with type A and often high achieving women, there is this notion that like we have to do more, better, faster, like the process needs to be big. And I love just the visual image I got of you literally tearing off whatever like scrap of paper is like right around you at the moment and sort of shifting your energy and and tossing it in. Yeah, it's kind of like a really short meditation or like, um, you know, sometimes it sometimes I'll sit there with a pen and like really have to think about it and be frustrated by the fact that I can't come up with something. Uh, and some some days something will happen to me and I'll know in that moment, like I'm putting this in my jar. Like I want to remember this thing. Um, 
So every day is a little bit different, but um, that's something I started doing. So my jar from last year is up on top of my bookcase, and people will come in sometimes and ask me about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, those are all the great things that happened to me last year. And then I have mine for this year sitting on my little entry table. Um, so it also has become kind of a conversation piece, but I encourage people that I know who have said I like that idea, I've encouraged them to try it because I do think I'm not always the best at at giving things a positive spin. And not everything deserves a positive spin necessarily, but um, I can definitely get bogged down in some negative energy and getting frustrated with things that haven't gone my way. And I think doing this has at least allowed me to clear my mind of that before I go to sleep. Um, and sometimes just writing something down, it, it releases it so that you're not obsessing about that thing anymore. So, you know, maybe it would be useful to do for the worst thing that happened in the day also just to get rid of that. Maybe don't collect those, but write those down also, which I haven't started doing, but it has been a really useful exercise for me. Very cool. And then you said you hadn't dipped into the cookie jar, so to speak, yet. No, I thought when I started doing it last year, I thought that maybe it would be kind of a ritual that on New Year's Day, I would go back through and read the the scraps of paper from the previous year. But on this New Year's Day, I decided that they weren't really in the past yet, that it was too much in the present. Um, and so I think I'm going to wait a couple years before I dig into it, um, so that it feels like I'm a little bit further removed and is a little bit more of like a nostalgic exercise as opposed to just reliving the past year. So for now, I'm just going to collect them and keep them, you know, either up on a shelf or something. And then I think in a couple years, maybe I'll, I'll go back and look at what happened. But what I'm really excited about is to see, you know, Every, every big event, I think, in your life starts with something smaller, whether it's like meeting a particular person or, like I said, having that friend um, either ask me to manage his band or that friend telling me that his company needed um, a receptionist or, or all of those moments. And it'll be neat at some point to look back on that small event that happened that, you know, turned into these big parts of my life. Um, so... I'm interested to see where it takes me. But for now, I haven't missed a day since January 1st, 2016. Um, oh, amazing. Yeah. Like I said, sometimes I, I'll do it the, the next morning if I come in at 4 a.m. or something. Yes. Sometimes the last thing I want to do is try and put something uh, legible into the jar. But I'll wake up and then reflect on the, on the previous <laughs> day and put it in there. You have every day covered. Yes. Yeah, you know, exactly. And Rachel, when you're totally feeling drained or spent, what do you do to revive yourself? It sounds like this helps you shift your energy like at the end of each day and kind of refocus on something positive. But like when you've been really burnt, mm-hmm. how do you reboot? Um, I, I usually just need to take some time for myself um, and do something that I don't have to do so often that'll be either cooking a meal that's just for me um, or just sitting down on the couch and like doing a crossword puzzle or something something that wasn't scheduled that wasn't on my list you know if I if I put on my calendar make dinner then making dinner that time isn't really a release 
Um, but it's, it's really just doing anything unscheduled. Um, sometimes it's as easy as reorganizing, um, uh, just like moving things around and moving furniture around and kind of changing the aura of, of the room or of my house or things like that. But, um, often it'll just be something small, like taking a breather and doing something that I want to do that wasn't, wasn't on my schedule. So it's really the whole release is just as long as it's not on the, the calendar. Yeah. Just breaking it can be away. almost anything. Uh-huh. Things that I would normally, um, yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll definitely put things like make dinner on there and I'll know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to batch cook and bring this to work the next four days. And then that's sort of like a responsibility and a task. But sometimes I'll blow that off and just say like, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And it, there's no, uh, greater purpose. It's not going to make my day tomorrow any easier. Um, it's just something that I want to do right now. Awesome. And what's the most inspiring or useful book you've ever read? Um, man, I, I thought about that a question, that question a lot once you sent it to me and I, um, I read quite a bit and I couldn't really come up with something that I thought was like the quintessential, um, book for me, but I do a book that really inspired me that I read a few years ago was the Amy Poehler, uh, memoir, I guess that she put out, I guess it maybe two, two years ago, um, and I let, well, I have a real weakness for female comedians and um, female writers and creators and things like that. So I tend to read, like I've met, read the Mindy Kaling um, books and Tina Fey, and I just love those. But Amy Poehler's to me was so insightful and honest and vulnerable, but also hilarious. And I just was really moved by the way that she was able to weave some really heavy things in her life, talking about some, some things that had happened in her career that she was really ashamed of and also go, you know, her divorce that she was going through and all of these, these big things in her life. And she was seamlessly sort of weaving that in with comedy and levity. And I just really loved that book and I've read it twice since then. Um, and it's made me cry. It's made me laugh out loud. I just, um, was really inspired by her ability to not let the big things drag her down, um, and, and figure out how to balance those out with the, the lightheartedness. Very cool. And I, the image of like you laughing and crying, like sort of simultaneously as you're reading a book. Or like on, I think I was on an airplane, at some point, like hysterically laughing next to some strangers. And I was like, eh, this Amy Poehler book is so good. I've had those moments, like especially years of being a reader on the subway in New York. Like there have been times where I'm like, oh, God, why did I bring this book today? Where I'm, I forget, what was it? Uh, Rob Sheffield, the the music journalist, he had written a, a book about mixed type about mixtapes that he had made for his wife as she was dying. And it was just like, again, like there were moments that were like incredibly poignant and funny and nerdy. And then like these other moments where I was like 
just sobbing Sobbing. on the subway, you know, like, you know, having to like take off my sock or something and like use it because I didn't have anything (laughs) else on me besides like this book. Um, what an amazing, an amazing, it's, it's such a joy when you find a book like that. So I'll make sure everyone has a link if anyone wants to find it and read it. Yeah, I'm trying, it's called, man, I'm looking through, um, I know I've like posted something about it to Instagram, but I read it like two years ago. It's, I think it's called yes. It's not yes, I can, but it's like, um, something about saying yes to everything, this is going to drive me crazy, but I'm going to come across it. I <laughs> and I can Google it. It's not. A I mean, I'm deal. saying like this, this book really moved me. And I'm like, what the hell was that book called? I know it has the word yes in the title. You know, it's funny you mentioned this because for as much as things move me like that, whether it be books or albums for me as a music fan as well, I have this visual blank where I could see the the cover of an album in terms of the yep, picture and the color, the but there are no words. Uh-huh. Like they're just gone. So like I could picture, you know, like the Clash's album or Elvis's album and see it and the color and the design and things like that, but like the words are blurry or gone. So I'm always like, Craig, what's that album? <laughs> yeah, or I'll say like I love that third track. Yes. That's on that record <laughs> on the purple that album. The clouds on the front. <laughs> But And I've listened to it 7,000 times, but I couldn't tell you for a million dollars what that song's called. Yeah, but if you asked me to recite any of the lyrics backwards or forwards, I probably could do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> totally get it. So don't worry. And these next couple questions, Rachel, are such an I, – I feel like I'm building this quilt of perspective around these questions. And I'm really in particular – especially knowing your academic background, want to hear your thoughts on these these next few questions. Okay, no pressure. I know, right? How would you define being a modern woman? Um, so I don't know that I have a definition for that, but I, I know a similar question that I um, used to get asked a lot, and um, I'm kind of glad that I, that I don't get asked it that much anymore, but when I first declared my undergraduate major in women's studies and started referring to myself as a feminist um, at a time when I feel like I didn't know a lot of people who were really owning that word, um, which is why I'm glad that I don't get asked it as much anymore because now I feel like I'm surrounded with people, women and men, who use that word constantly and it, it doesn't seem to have nearly the, the sort of taboo that it had for me about 15 or so years ago when I started applying it to myself. But I used to get asked a lot about the women's studies thing and about why, what, what a feminist was and why I was one. And my answer to people always was that there weren't specific rules to me that made someone, um, you didn't have to believe in like this set of, of ideas or tenets to be, considered a feminist it was really just the act of being conscious of the way that not only gender but also um, all these other identifiers sexuality and race and class and and all of these things how they were affecting you and your interactions with other people on a daily basis and just keeping your mind open 
to those, those effects. And so even things like knowing your privilege and being, being as aware as possible of your privilege and how you are able to move through certain situations easier than others because of that privilege. Um, that to me was what I learned. And that's all it meant to me to say that I was a feminist was like, I'm just trying to be conscious of how all of these um, identities and how language and how uh, behavior and how uh, media and the images that were shown and all of this stuff is all this big conversation that's telling us what's valued and what's good and what isn't as good and um, how all of that is tied up primarily to me in race and class and gender and sexuality. Um, and what you take from that is going to be different. Like I think there are obviously there's such a wide spectrum of women that are doing so many great things and that are approaching them so differently. Um, and that might answer all of these questions that you're asking me today, completely opposite from how I'm answering them, but they're all participating in this, in this conversation and trying to, um, think about how they're existing in the world and how they're relating to other people and how um, their background and their identity and their personality is affecting all of those interactions. And so to me, to be a modern woman is just to not to ever answer a question with like, well, that's just how it is, which is my least favorite answer <laughs> to any question. And just always questioning those, those belief systems and just being aware of them and how they're operating. That is such a great perspective. I am endlessly fascinated as women answer these questions because like like you were talking about, everyone comes with with a radically different answer for that question. And I, I always like to ask that question first, specifically because the next two questions – you know, I, I feel like that question is about reflecting on like what your individual perspective is. The next two questions are kind of what can we do to make the situation better? What can we do to create the world and the conversation that we want to see out there? And so from that perspective, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? What's really important to me is kind of putting to rest that sense of competition and, and being a little bit more open to ways that we can um, be successful ourselves, but also support each other and raise each other up. Um, kind of like that, that gift that I sent you the other day um, about the women that were all uh, boosting each other. Yes, I should um, find that and post it in the blog post. Yeah, I, I, that was by an artist. Um, I think I give her credit in that post because I found it somewhere um, on the internet and just thought it was such a great representation of that. But I think women that have that sense of wanting to be um, successful and to achieve things and that are really driven and ambitious, which I admire so much, um, it's sometimes I think we get caught up in our own goals and our own, um, our own drive. And I really think that when we're all kind of do in that together and helping each other, that, 
um, we all end up being more successful. Um, so I guess, does that answer that question? Yeah. Is that giving about something? Okay. Yeah. And so I have a follow-up question. Have you experienced another woman lifting you up or vice versa? Have you lifted another woman up? And what did that look like? Because I think sometimes people are starved for ideas. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I wish that a ton more specific anecdotes came to mind. Um, and I also think that there are so many times that all of us have done the opposite and have tried to kind of um, use someone else's weakness as a way of of getting ahead. And I'm sure that we all do that. But I think especially, well, there's a couple things. Um, one of my best friends that I work with at Powerhouse, who I've become friends with only in the past couple of years, we worked there for a while together and never really had any sort of relationship. And then, um, I think just went to watch a basketball game or something together one night. And since then I've become really close friends, but, um, I have sort of without, without like using my position in the company, um, in, in any sort of like inappropriate way, I've seen her do things at work that I think aren't being, um, noticed or utilized. Like she has a skill set that other people don't have. And, um, I've suggested to her direct supervisors that maybe it would be a good idea to, um, it maybe as like a trial position to give her some more responsibility in like a client communication, sort of a, sort of a setting. Um, which I do both because I love and care about her as a friend, but also because I think it would be genuinely, helpful for the company to have her in that role because I think she would be really good at it. Um, so I made that recommendation and I, I also think at the time my boss said, did she ask you to do this? Cause he knew we were friends and I was like, no, she has no idea. I just, um, you know, watch her interact with people and think that this is something that we're missing out on as a company and that we could, um, really benefit from giving her a little bit more leeway. Um, and then also, in the management position, I keep meeting these really talented women in the, the music industry that are either photographers or um, show promoters or um, work with festivals or brands or whatever it is. Um, and anytime I meet um, a woman that's also in the industry, I'm always trying to find ways for us to collaborate on something. So there's a really talented um, female photographer who does a lot of band photography. And we were talking the other day about trying to set up a shoot together, like producing um, a, a photo shoot for one of our bands um, since she has that, that creative eye. But I also have a background in production through this animation thing and just kind of trying to figure out a project that we could do together. Um, partially because I just think it would be fun to work with her. And I think that we could both learn from each other. Um, but I just also like giving opportunities to women that are working in these industries alongside me that are hurting for more women. Um, those are great examples. Yeah. I'm just kind of always looking for those, those opportunities to come up. Nice. Thank you. I know I kind of put you on the spot and I didn't, no, I never know what anyone's answers are going to be, but that I, 
I found that fascinating. So thank well, you. Well, I'll think of a way better answer later and then I'll email it to you. <laughs> cool. I'll happily share it in the okay, notes. Good. <laughs> and conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I think caring so much what other people think of you, um, which sometimes is a really great thing. I mean, I care a hell of a lot what a handful of people think about me, but the majority of people that I come in contact with every day, um, it's too exhausting to worry about how you appear to them. And, um, if they think you're nice enough or smart enough or fucking pretty enough or like all those things that are so exhausting that I know keep people up at night that especially keep women up at night. Um, I just try and let that stuff go. Even learning that people that I might work with or interact with don't think the best of me rather than letting that bog me down. It's like what different, like if, if you're, liked by every single person that you come across that doesn't even really seem authentic to me you know um I'm not saying be less likable it'd be more difficult to be around but um you just can't please everyone and I think that women just exhaust themselves with trying to be everything to everyone and you know enjoyable and palatable and all these things all the time and sometimes I just say, fuck it. It's so, too much to worry about. Here's the $60,000 question. And you may or may not have an answer. And okay. we'll, we'll see. What helps you be like, who fucking cares? Um, that's a great question. I, I mean, I'm not always like that. There are definitely, there are, there are definitely people in my life that if I knew I had done something to upset them, that that would destroy me and I would do everything I could to fix it. Of but course. the majority of people like on a, on a given day, we might have interactions with as many as 50 people between getting to work and going to lunch and going to the bank and, you know, on the subway or whatever you're doing, we interact with people all the time. And, um, so many of those interactions maybe are, are not at all memorable and, and have no feelings attached to them. But, um, any number of those could go kind of sideways on you. Um, and if you, at the end of the day are holding on to all of those, I just don't know how you get anything done. So I don't know what I'm doing to let go of that. I just think as I've gotten older, I've just decided that I can't be concerned constantly with if I talked too much or too loud or if I told a joke at a party that people didn't laugh at or um, I don't know. There's just so many things every day that we embarrass ourselves um, or turn people off or whatever it is. And it's just too, it's just too much to carry around all the time. Yeah, that perseveration is exhausting for people. I mean, there have definitely been points in my life where, to your point, like there are people that I really care about their opinion and I value their opinion and I care what they think about me. And I've just 
done something completely asinine and had to sort of dig myself out of that. And there was a lot of just like replaying the the situation in my head thinking, okay, well, I guess I can't change it, but how can I at least yeah, fix like, it Yeah, like, I really handled it? that badly and let me, I'm going to make sure that this person knows that I handled it badly. And that's an important thing to go through. But there's also times when, you know, when I'll learn that such as a friend of a friend that I talked to at a bar or, you know, whatever it is, doesn't like me and thinks that I'm abrasive or thinks that I'm whatever. And it's like, all right, I am abrasive. That's fine. (laughs) You know, like I can't let that, that person's not going to be my best friend then. Um, But I, I just can't, I can't let that uh, hold me back. I guess it's, I think it, it, I don't know how people even can, can go about their daily lives. And I, I know people that are such people pleasers. I had an ex-boyfriend who was such a people pleaser and admittedly like needed everyone to like him. And if he learned that someone didn't like him, he would have to know why and he would want to try and fix it. And I just remember being like, man, it does like, who cares? Just (laughs) let it go, you know? Got it. Got it. Well, I love your reflections on this. And Rachel, I know you have a Wonder Woman screening to get to. <laughs> and before I before I totally let you skedaddle into your night, what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know? Um, wow, that's a hard question, but um. For me, like the biggest, the biggest thing that I've learned over the past several years, kind of figuring out what my place is professionally, um, and at the same time, in a lot of ways, personally, because those things um, are are so tied up for so many of us, especially the the women that you're speaking to are the overscheduled women. You know, those are those things are conflated. Um, what I've learned is that everything that I've achieved. And everything um, that really that I think I'm proud of is something that I've specifically asked for and not just um, decided that that I'd like to try something and then, you know, maybe come up with steps to go after it. But specifically just letting it be known what you want and what you think you deserve and why you think you deserve it and and letting people know that has been the greatest thing that I've that I've done in both of my jobs and has also served me pretty well um often in my personal life and when it doesn't I kind of just you know throw those those instances away you know maybe it'll backfire on you but if that's the case then that was ultimately going to happen anyway and you've just it's just been a catalyst to kind of get to that point um which is the same thing it's kind of ironic that I give dating advice because I'm terrible at dating but um I always say that like on a first date people always try and be the best versions of themselves and they try and be like the very buttoned up um like the the very I don't know just the the best that they could be the putting their best foot forward and I kind of say like you know just be the the middle of the road version of yourself, just be like the most honest, raw, don't try and be overly impressive because ultimately all you're doing is dragging out that process of people learning really who you are. Um, 
and and just delaying that inevitable. So people are going to like what you put in front of them if it's if it's true to who you are or they're not going to, but if if they aren't then why waste your time with that scenario. So if you ask for something and get turned away, then you probably weren't going to get that thing and now you haven't wasted all the time pining for it. Yeah, and what could be years in some instances for people. Yeah, and then it's such a I I hate disappointment is about my fav, my least favorite emotion. I just hate that being let down. So, um you know, I I try and just go after it right away and if it doesn't work out then I'm free to to move on to the next thing. So cool. So cool. And Rachel, I'm going to make sure that everyone has links to your socials and to Powerhouse and things like that in the show notes. What's your favorite way? If a woman listening wants to connect with you, what's your what's your favorite way? Well, that's a great question. You, I guess you and I initially connected via Facebook, so uh, that that's always good. Um, but yeah, my... If you if you're interested if you're a music lover and you're interested in the bands that I've been working with um, definitely check out my my Jetternaut management website I link to all the websites of the bands I work with they are all incredibly talented um, and diverse and I'm really proud of all of them um, in the same way that I'm proud of all the amazing artists that I work with at Powerhouse we're doing some really cool things we actually just were able to announce about a week ago um, that we are producing a Netflix original series that will be out in early July. Um, so maybe by the time this podcast goes live, you can go watch Castlevania on Netflix, which is a show that we directed and animated. Um, so there's just a lot of really amazing art that is happening around me that uh, while I'm not doing, I'm helping to support and, promote and I'm just really proud of all those things um but if you want to connect with me directly um yeah feel free to throw up my my Facebook and my Instagram and all that kind of stuff and I'm always happy to talk to new interesting fascinating ladies oh Rachel you are just so fantastic (laughs) thank you thank you so much for being here like I loved every second of this conversation yeah this was a blast thanks for asking me to do this awesome take care bye Hey everyone, this is Kara again. I hope you dug hearing Rachel's story. Thank you so much for listening all the way here to the end. And don't forget, you can find all of the links and the resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. And new shows will roll out on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. And, you know, I know we talk about a lot of different things in this show, but if you've been feeling like it's time to get your shit together, get some helpful emails from me a couple of times each month with some strategic health and lifestyle tools. Plus, you'll be in the know about recent podcasts and upcoming Vital Core events. 
And so you can get that email at the same website and just click on Get Emails From Me, which is at the bottom or the side of most pages. And before I bounce, merci beaucoup to my producer and husband, Craig Snyder, for always making us ladies talking sound really lovely and levels balanced and all the magic that he works in Pro Tools. And I always want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing my cool theme song and the High Dials for performing it. I really appreciate having that nice little sonic flourish in this show. And I just want to remind everyone before you roll out into the rest of your day, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down. See you next time.